How does one start an episode? All right, just take the intro. Just take the intro. And whoever goes too deep into this has his share of that curse. So we are cursed with what we are doing here. It's like no matter how bad things get, there's something good out there. People know the hero who saved them. The hero can be anyone. Hello world, welcome to another week of Deeper Than That. My name is Chris, I'm your host, and for this episode, I have a little bit of a confession to make. I'm not very religious. When people ask me the deep questions about faith or religious beliefs, my answer is usually some variation of, I have no idea what's going on. If you've been listening to the last two episodes, you'll know that I've slowly been sculpting my own definition of heroism, little by little. And if you're really intuitive, you've probably noticed that through telling these stories about other people, I'm also on my own personal search for inspiration, my own personal search for truth and purpose and all that good stuff. So I guess having said that, this episode is about faith, something as tumultuous as ocean waves in my life, but also something that I found to be a common thread between all the people I spoke to for this first chapter of Deeper Than That. I'm not gonna convert you to any religion in this episode, but I think it's important to note that the heroes of this epic so far are faithful. They believe in something, and usually it's as simple as believing that things can get better. Petrona and Ernesto's parents and grandparents believed this. It's why they chose to pursue a life in the United States. It's why they persisted through the persecution of their people in Guatemala. But Petrona and Ernesto also shared this idea that they were part of a community, a word which to me means some sort of connectedness between people. This is why both Petrona and Ernesto told me they could use their own challenges to help other people. It's what motivated Petrona to pursue social work and what motivated Ernesto to volunteer at the Guatemalan Maya Center. Ernesto said it best when he said he wants to help others who are suffering through what he suffered. He admitted though, he didn't always think this way. Instead, at first, he was bitter towards some people. Before I used to think um, oh, a lot different. <laughs> I don't care about people. I don't care about the community. They suffer, I don't care. I suffer for that, so I don't care. If they suffer, I don't care. I asked Ernesto what changed his mind. He said he owed it to Father Frank O'Loughlin. Father Frank is the man who started the Guatemalan Maya Center. Sadly, he got sick a few weeks ago, just as I was planning to go talk to him, from a safe COVID distance, of course. He had to have surgery and has been recovering since, so I haven't been able to talk to him. Luckily, my friend Pia Valbuena has talked to him, a lot. She worked alongside him while volunteering at the Escolita Maya. Father Frank is this <laughs> amazing man who just, I think even just calling him Father Frank is going to be deceiving because every, at the center they call him like Padre because he is this Irish man, very Irish, but has become just as an important member in the Maya community as anybody else. Even though I couldn't interview Father Frank, Bia had interviewed him once. I took a class for my public service um, minor. I took a class called the Vocation of Public Service, and we had to write a paper about a public servant. And the first person who came into my mind was Father Frank. And I, I remember perfectly sitting at the, the library of Villanova downstairs with headphones in. And I said to Father Frank, all right, Father Frank, you talk, I'll listen. And we just sat for hours and hours and he just talked and talked and told me all of these amazing stories. I mean, I have millions of stories in my, po in my pocketbook. Father Frank is a retired Catholic priest, so naturally he's a man of faith. 
but it's how he's embodied and multiplied that faith that puts him on my growing list of heroes. And I'm not only talking about multiplying his religious faith, I'm talking about his faith in goodness, that simple idea that things can and will get better. Like Tim Gamwell said in episode one, Father Frank originally started the Guatemalan Maya Center in 1992, but Father Frank's social work and advocating for migrants started long before that. Here's an excerpt from Pia's essay that I mentioned earlier. I think it does a good job giving the origins of Father Frank's story. So here it goes. Near-death experiences are the typical starting point for a good story. And luckily for this essay, Frank O'Loughlin had one. Frank attended a boarding school in Ireland with Europe's wealthiest children. The boarding school was the target for many big companies to recruit future employees. They would come to the school and talk to the students who were eager to find high-paying jobs to maintain the lifestyles they had been living up to that point. Like many of the other students, Frank was pursued by a large accounting firm who offered to help him through college and have a job available for him when he graduated. Being one of eight children, the offer was tempting, and the answer was almost obvious. This was Frank O'Loughlin's near-death experience, the moment he almost became an accountant. I'm going to paraphrase a little here. Father Frank obviously didn't take the job. Instead, he joined a seminary to pursue his real calling of becoming a priest. He joined the All Hallows Seminary, which was a seminary of missionaries. They were the priests who traveled on ships between the U.S. and Ireland during the potato famine. Lots of people died on those trips, so they needed priests on board to give the blessings and funerals. Here's Pia's essay again. In 1965, Father Frank was sent to West Palm Beach, Florida to work in a parish by military trail. I'm going to interrupt real quick, just to let you know that that part of Florida that B.S. talking about is a rural area a few hours northwest of Miami. And back in the 60s, it was way more rural. All right, back to the essay. This parish was primarily attended by the farm workers from the area, mostly Mexican immigrants. One day there was a knock on the parish door. It was a man looking for a priest to say a prayer at a funeral. Father Frank was the only one available, and having only recently arrived from Ireland, he barely spoke Spanish, but agreed to help the man and his family. He recalls reciting the Hail Mary in Spanish, very poorly, over the closed coffin, and then a basket going around collecting money to pay for the funeral home, because the family couldn't afford the funeral without some help. Eventually, he realized that this was a funeral for a child around six years old. Here's Bia telling the rest of the story. The reason the child had died was because he had fallen. So in the farm, in the fields, there were these giant wells that connected to these like plain-like contraptions to water the, the crops. And the wells were uncovered and unfenced. And the kids who at that time weren't allowed to go to public schools were in, who were in the fields with their parents would be running around and f would fall into the wells and die. And the and of course, people who like the owners of these fields would not care. They didn't do anything and they wouldn't they wouldn't cover them. They refused to um, to do anything about it. And this was the first moment where Father Frank was like, this is absolutely unacceptable. That is where Father Frank's heroic journey began. He started working with Cesar Chavez's Farm Workers Union in California, boycotting and protesting alongside migrant communities. He built schools and homes for migrant families. He sent thousands and thousands of letters to legislators on behalf of migrants. A few years later, Father Frank was transferred to a town nearby, a town called Indian Town in Florida. In the last episode, I talked about the history of the Maya in Guatemala and the silent holocaust that drove many of them away from their homeland. The 1980s were the height of the genocide in Guatemala. And many Maya families started making their way to the U.S. during that time. Many of them wound up in a place called Indian Town, right? The, the, Los Indios, the indigenous people, had heard about this place because there was an Irish priest working with Mexican migrant workers and Haitian and Jamaican migrant workers in 
in Martin County. And that is Father Frank O'Loughlin. And so when this, this group of seven men and one woman were found um, by uh, Customs and Border Patrol walking in a single file line down the road, uh, they were taken to Chrome Detention Center, but nobody could understand a word they were saying. The first call that uh, CBP made was, and, and the attorneys that were trying to represent these people, was to Father Frank. Uh, because they knew him as the migrant priest, right? Like this is the person who represents migrant farm workers. And so from that first relationship with people who turned out to be Mayan Indians, this place, South Florida, has become a home to thousands of indigenous Maya people. Like I mentioned earlier, there's this resounding faith and connectedness that everyone I've spoken to for this story subscribes to. It's this belief that everyone in my community is just like me and just like I must help myself I must also help others. This is a choice that everyone makes. It's a choice to subscribe to the belief that we're all in this together. It's either that or everyone for themselves. Father Frank chose option A. And that is a choice that separates heroes from the rest of us. He had chosen to, to like answer the call. He was sent, he was sent to Indian Town to be the parish priest. And um, in Indian Town, you know, you can choose to preach to to, you know, to the community um, in English and never learn Spanish, right? But then you've cut, cut out all the farm labor um, and you're preaching just to the, the growers and the owners of the sugarcane. But Father Frank, you know, the Irish Catholic priest went out um, and made connections with the migrant farmer community. You know, he was their priest. He, you know, celebrated their funerals and their, and their marriages and went into the labor camps, right, um, and found them attorneys, um, got them to hospitals and doctors. This choice that Father Frank made reminded me of a Bible verse that I'd forgotten about until it popped in my head while hearing the story. It's Matthew 20, verse 16. I looked it up. It goes like this. So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. That's King James Version for you Bible savants. I'm going to put my own interpretation out there, because I'm not a theologian. But Father Frank chose to put the last first. He chose to help a group of people that were considered last by society. And about that second part of the verse, well, you just heard it from Tim Gamwell. Father Frank answered the call. He was called to do this work. And whether he was chosen by God or made the choice himself or both, there was an inflection point between action and passivity. And Father Frank chose action. If you've listened to the last episode, you'll know that Father Frank's work through the Guatemalan Maya Center and beyond is immense. He's helped hundreds of families with anything from prenatal care to legal representation to schools, education, and protection. For Father Frank, the last of us are as important as the first. Everyone is the same and deserves to be cared for. That's why Father Frank started the Guatemalan Maya Center in 1992, which originally aimed at helping mothers with prenatal care. Also, as a side note, language was another big reason the Guatemalan Maya Center got started. They were initially working to solve the problem of um, of premature babies and of babies that were born without any prenatal care. So moms who had, who just weren't going into the hospital until it was too late, uh, you know, there'd be an emergency. They'd have to have their first visit with a, a doctor would be their delivery. Not, but not just like an obstetrician, right? Like their first delivery with a doctor in their lives. All these complications, low birth weight, um, you know, high mortality rate, 
um, you know, issues just with, with prenatal vitamins. And it's really easy to classify these things as sort of like a linguistic issue, right? Because these, these people were speaking uh, Mam or Kanhobal, like one of 28 different Mayan languages. But you can't simply translate from one language to another, right? You're really translating cultural concepts. And so when you tell somebody that they have to take, you know, food, like a, if you're trying to translate, you have to take like food that's high in caloric content. You know, how do you translate that concept, right? Is it high in, is it, is it heat, right? Is it, is it like comida caliente or is it like, you know, is it nutrition? Like, what is it that you're trying to, to translate? And so having a team of people who are there um, to linguistically and culturally translate the experience for doctors and for pregnant mothers was the beginning of the Guatemala Maya Center in 1992. And they broke the back. They broke the back on that problem. You know, they really found a way to reach out to these mothers to the point where it is the norm now for indigenous women in Lake Worth to go to the hospital for their prenatal care. From there, the center expanded. They started the Escuelita Maya to take care of children of farm workers. They set up programs for housing and legal assistance. They expanded to the point where the Guatemalan Maya Center now helps the local community with pretty much anything they need. The center really responds to the current issues that are facing this population. So it's hard to it's hard to nail down, but if you're if you're looking for what the center's doing, then look to the problems that are in the community. And that's what the center is trying to solve. It's not just the tangible benefits of the Guatemalan Maya Center that make it so important. It's the simple fact that the community surrounding it, which Father Frank helped build, has changed countless lives by simply spreading this radical idea. And by radical, I mean that sarcastically. This faith that there should be equal opportunity and respect for everyone, and that whatever is broken can be made better. From what I hear, Father Frank is quite vocal about this simple idea. And he's been that way since the 1960s, when perhaps believing that all people should be treated fairly wasn't a common idea in the United States, especially not in the South. But Pia tells me Father Frank cares, and he cares a lot. As much as you think someone could care for everyone at once, that's how much he cares and then some. You might remember that Pia and I went to high school together. We also ended up going to the same college, Villanova University. And in 2016, Villanova's basketball team won the national championship. So one thing I will always remember, this is this has nothing to do with, with his work, but just, just as an idea of how much he just cares about everyone he works with including myself is i'll never forget um in the 2016 national championship for villanova villanova's national championship for basketball the game had just finished it was crazy everything was going crazy at villanova and my phone was ringing like crazy and it was father frank and i was like what is going on i had no idea and of course and, and i thought like oh my goodness what's happening so i answer the phone and he is like screaming into the phone and then he couldn't control himself he's like congratulations like all of a sudden he was super happy about it and then miss miss d comes on the phone miss d is maria de la guardia she runs the salt program remember the service and leadership for today and tomorrow program it's a program at immaculata la salle high school the school that b and i went to and she goes, B, I have to confess something to you. I had to pause the game because Father Frank was so anxious that he, I thought he was gonna have another heart attack. So I had to pause the game, wait for it to end, find out that Villanova won and then let him finish watching the game because 
that was so close that he was like freaking out and all he kept saying was if they lose Pia's gonna freak out if they lose Pia's gonna freak out and so that and it's it has nothing to do with public service but for me that's one of the things that just always stood out to me of this man is like just cares you know he has it, it goes through all aspects of anybody's life Bia told me she thinks usually father frank isn't that into basketball or sports in general father frank has cared this much for people for a long time and even though he's growing old he's restless in the fight to improve the lives of migrant workers and their families he's restless to keep improving his community maybe one of father frank's greatest accomplishments is just inspiring others to live in service Everyone I've spoken to for this story has been influenced by him and his character. Working with the little ones, I've seen how they, how, so how they're, they're always the, the last ones to get picked for anything at school. Um, school, which is like the center of any child's life, for them is not, and for a long time wasn't a safe place until the Escuelita Maya was created. And I think... For my, my focus in my life is to work with children and to work and to help create a safe space for children, specifically children who are going through traumas. Um, and that's just ultimately what these kids are going through every day. They don't know if when they get home, their parents are going to be home. They don't know if um, where their next meal is going to come from. That's traumatic in itself. And I'm positive and there's no doubt in my mind that working with them from a young age myself has inspired me and has made me realize how important it is for to focus on their mental health and to be able to help their mental health and that's really what my focus and goal in life is to work with early childhood um mental health and especially with kids going through trauma just like patrona ernesto tim gamwell and many others Bia was inspired by her work with father frank and the escuelita maya to pursue careers that help others Bia, for one, studied psychology in college, as well as public service and administration. She's still involved with the Escolita Maya and the SALT program, and she wants to get a doctorate in psychology so she can continue to help children, especially children who have experienced trauma. Bia said her work with the Escolita Maya has been pivotal to her goals and dreams. One of the things it says in, in the paper is, and that I write to conclude it, is Father Frank is completely restless. And that's something that I talk about in, in the paper that he talks about himself. And um, I think that his restlessness is what has fueled him. And, but he's, Father Frank is, he's getting older and his time may soon come to an end, which is something that's scary to think about because it's, he's such an important person to so many people, but it's also just their reality. And I think one of the greatest things about Father Frank and just about his life in general is that he has left the most phenomenal legacy. And I think one of my proudest things is to be able to be part of Father Frank's legacy. So the question still stands. What makes a hero? Maybe it's overcoming extreme adversity and still accomplishing a goal, like Petrona did by making it to college. Maybe it's maintaining a positive outlook no matter the circumstances, and using your own experiences to help others, like Ernesto does. Maybe it's persisting and thriving no matter what, like the entire Guatemalan Maya community does. Maybe it's always sticking to what you believe in and fighting for it like Father Frank does. Maybe it's using whatever privilege and resources you have to help children like Bia is doing. It's pretty hard for me to come up with one concise definition of what makes a hero, 
probably because I learned about so many of them for this story. Next week, I'll introduce you to a new story, a new chapter about the fight for clean oceans. Did you know that by 2050, there could be more plastic in the ocean than fish? Stay tuned for next week's episode where I'll talk to some people taking on the fight against plastic pollution. That's all I got for you this week. Special thanks to Lindsay McElroy for her help with the last three episodes. Special thanks to Trevor Green for production oversight. Thanks to Michael Malone for editorial oversight. Deeper Than That is produced and written by me, Christopher Barrett. I'll see you next week. And whoever goes too deep into this has his share of that curse. So we are cursed with what we are doing here. It's like no matter how bad things get, there's something good out there. People know the hero who saved them. A hero can be anyone.